With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And steering eastward, we're out of sight of land for a few hours. A more venturous voyage for these coasting craft than the crossing of the Atlantic is for us today. It must have been a trying experience for knight and yeoman, and they must have felt that a great peril was passed when the tops of church towers and windmills showed above the horizon, and then the low shore, fringed with sand hills, and the green dikes came in sight. Coasting along the shore northeastwards, the fleet reached a point to the northwest of Bruges, not far from where the watering place of Blankenberg now stands. It had been ascertained from fishermen and coast folk that the French fleet was still at Sluice, and it was decided to proceed no further without reconnoitring the enemy. The larger ships anchored, the smaller were beached. The fighting men landed and camped on the shore to recover from the distresses of their voyage, during which they would have been cramped up in narrow quarters. Instead of, like a modern admiral, sending some of his lighter and swifter ships to take a look at the enemy, King Edward arranged a cavalry reconnaissance, a simple matter for his knightly following. Some of the horses were got ashore, and a party of knights mounted and rode over the sand-hills towards Sluice. They reached a point where, without being observed by the enemy, they could get a good view of the hostile fleet, and they brought back news that made the king decide to attack next day. The French fleet was commanded by two knights, the Sieur de Crier and the Sieur de Bauchet. Crier's name suggests that he came of the Breton race that has given so many good sailors and naval officers to France, so perhaps he knew something of the sea. Associated with the two French commanders, there was an experienced fighting admiral, a veteran of the wars of the Mediterranean, Barbavera, who commanded the Genoese ships. Though they had a slight superiority of numbers and more large ships than the English, Carrier and Bauchet were, as one might expect from their prolonged inactivity, very wanting in enterprise now that the crisis had come. They were preparing to fight on the defensive. It was in vain that the experienced commander Barbavera urged that they should weigh anchor and fight the English in the open sea, where numbers and weight would give them an advantage that would be lost in the narrow waters of the Ede estuary. They persisted in awaiting the attack. The French fleet was anchored along the south shore of the river mouth, sterns to the land, its left towards the river-mouth, its right towards the town of Sluice. The vessel on the extreme left was an English ship of large size, the great Christopher, captured in the channel in the first days of the war. The ships were grouped in three divisions, left, centre, and right. Kyrie and Bauchet adopted the same plan of battle that King Olaf had used at Swold. 
the ships in each of the three divisions were lashed together side by side so that they could only be boarded by the high narrow bows and there was an addition to the norse plan for inboard across the bows barricades had been erected formed of oars spars and planking fastened across the forecastle decks behind these barriers archers and genoese crossbowmen were posted there was a second line of archers in the fighting tops for since the times of norse warfare the masts had become heavier and now supported above the crossyard a kind of crow's nest where two or three bowmen could be stationed with shields hung round them as a parapet the fleet thus was converted into a series of three long narrow floating forts it was an intelligible plan of defence for a weak fleet against a strong one but a hopeless plan for an armament strong enough to have met its opponents on the open sea ship to ship at salt eric jarl had shown that such an array could be destroyed piecemeal if assailed on an exposed flank and at sluice the left where the great christopher lay to seaward positively invited such an attack king edward saw his advantage as soon as his knights came back from their adventurous ride and told him what they had seen and he arranged his plans accordingly his great ships were to lead the attack and concentrate their efforts on the left of the french line the rest were to pass inside them and engage the enemy in front on the left and centre the enemy had by tying up his ships made it impossible to come to the rescue of the left even if the narrow waters of the estuary would have allowed him to deploy his force into line the english would have and could not fail to keep a local superiority from the very outset on the left of the enemy and once it came to close quarters they would clear the french and genoese decks from end to end of the line taking ship after ship while the attack developed the english archers would prepare the way for it by thinning the ranks of their enemies on the ships in the centre and then on the right at dawn on twenty fourth june the day of battle the wind was blowing fair into the mouth of ede but the tide was ebbing and the attack could not be driven home till it turned and gave deep water everywhere between the banks of the inlet king edward used the interval to array his fleet and get it into position for the dash into the river his ships stood out to sea on the starboard tack a brave sight with the midsummer sun shining on the white sails the hundreds of banners glowing with red blue white and gold the painted shields hanging on poop and bulwark on the raised bows and sterns of the larger ships barons and knights and men-at-arms stood arrayed in complete armour the archers were ranged along the bulwarks or looked out from the crow's nest tops over the swelling sails old Babavera must have longed to cut lashings slip cables drift out on the tide and meet the english in the open but he was in a minority of one against two and now the tide was dead slack and began to turn and king edward's trumpets gave the expected signal for action as their notes rang over the sea the shouting sailors squared the yards and the fleet began to scud before the wind for the river mouth where beyond the green dykes that kept the entrance free a forest of masts bristled along the bank towards sluice the english came in with wind and tide helping them several ships abreast the rest following each as quickly as she might like a great flock of sea-birds streaming towards the shore there could be no long-ranging fire to prelude the close attack at some sixty yards when men could see each other's faces across the gap the english archers drew their bows and the cloth-yard arrows began to fly their first target the great christopher on the flank of the line bolts from crossbows came whizzing back in reply but as at crecy soon after 
The longbow, with its rapid discharge of arrows, proved its superiority over the slower, mechanical weapon of the Genoese crossbowmen. But no time was lost in mere shooting. Two English ships crashed into the bows and the port side of the Christopher, and with the cry of, St. George for England, a score of knights vied with each other for the honour of being first on board of the enemy. The other ships of the English van swung round bow to bow with the next of the French line, grappled and fought to board them. King Edward himself climbed over the bows of a French ship, risking his life as freely as the youngest of his esquires. Then for a while on the French left it was a question of which could best handle the long heavy swords, made not for deft fencing work but for sheer hard hacking at helmet and breastplate. Behind this fight on the flank, ship after ship slipped into the river, but at first attacked only the left division closely, those that had pushed furthest in opening with arrow-fire on the centre and leaving the right to look helplessly on. The English archers soon cleared the enemy's tops of their bowmen, and then, from the English masts, shot coolly into the throng on the hostile decks, their comrades at the bulwarks shooting over the heads of those engaged in the bows. The English arrows inflicted severe loss on the enemy, but the real business was done by the close attack of the boarding parties that cleared ship after ship from the left inwards, each ship attacked in turn having to meet the knights and men-at-arms from several of the English vessels. But the French fought with determined courage, and hour after hour went by as the attack slowly worked its way along the line. The slaughter was terrible, for in a sea-fight, as in the storming of a city wall, no quarter was asked or given. The crews of the captured ships were cut down as they fought, or driven over the stern into the water, where, for the most part, their heavy armour drowned them. It was past noon, and the tide was turning, when the left and centre, the squadrons of Kyrie and Bauche, were all captured. Then the attack raged round the nearest vessels on the right, tall ships of the Genoese. Most of these, too, were taken, but as the tide ran out, King Edward feared his large ships would ground in the upper waters of the estuary, and the signal was given to break off the attack, an order welcome even to the weary victors. Barbavera, with a few ships, got clear of the beaten right wing and lay up near Sluis, while the English plundered and burned some of their prizes and took the best of them out to sea on the ebbing tide. In the night the Genoese admiral slipped out to sea and got safely away. The French fleet had been utterly destroyed, and the Genoese sailors had no intention of further risking themselves in King Philip's quarrel. They thought only of returning as soon as might be to the Mediterranean. King Edward went on to Ghent, after landing his fighting men, and sending his fleet to bring further forces from England. Henceforth, for many a long year, he might regard the Channel as a safe highway for men and supplies for the war in France. The victory of the English had cost them a relatively trifling loss. The French losses are said to have been nearly thirty thousand men. Strange to say, among the English dead were four ladies who had embarked on the king's ship to join the queen's court at Ghent. How they were killed is not stated. Probably they were courageous dames whose curiosity led them to watch the fight from the tall poop of the flagship as they would have watched a tournament from the galleries of the lists and there the crossbow bolts of the Genoese found them. There is an old story that men feared to tell King Philip the news of the disaster, and the court jester broke the tidings with a casual remark that the French must be braver than the English, for they jumped into the sea by scores, while the islanders stuck to their ships. 
the defeat at sea prepared the way for other defeats by land, and in these campaigns there appeared a new weapon of war, rudely fashioned cannon of short range and slow, inaccurate fire, the precursors of heavier artillery that was to change the whole character of naval warfare. It was the coming of the cannon that inaugurated the modern period. But before telling of battles in which artillery played the chief part, we must tell of a decisive battle that was a link between old and new. Lepanto, the battle that broke the Turkish power in the Mediterranean, saw, like the sea-fights of later days, artillery in action, and at the same time oar-driven galleys fighting with the tactics that had been employed at Salamis and Actium, and knights in armour storming the enemy's ships like Eric Jarl at Svold and King Edward at Sluis. End of chapter 4